Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we're all a little too poor to be Scientologists. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM, Ada, Grand Rapids, or streaming live at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Scientologist, clean me out. I got nothing. Uh, this is, if you haven't picked up on it already, the long-awaited and much-begged-for uh, look at Scientology. Well, Scientology is in the news quite a bit recently, mm-hmm. in the past month and a half. And now that we have a legal representation, I believe you know Mr. Cohen, the fourth member of our podcast. <laughs> We made sure we lined up lawyers before we even (laughs) talked about the issue on this show. Also, in today's episode, we will talk to an ex-Mormon about getting out of that, and uh, we'll talk about touch on Jehovah's Witnesses and some of the other fun cults making their presence felt here and around the world. But first, Jeremy, I believe you have an email. I just wanted to mention an email that we got recently. There's been quite a bit of a response to our last episode where we talked to Jackie, our young 14-year-old female listener Mm -hmm. who doesn't believe in God and was having trouble talking to family members about it. Well, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but we've just gotten a bunch of email lately and blog comments from other people who are going through the same thing or have gone through the same thing. I think the sentiment that you see over and over again is, is you know, you've got to find this balance of being true to yourself mm-hmm. and sharing what you really do believe. And on the other hand, making sure that you don't alienate your relationships with family. Well, I got a really interesting email just this morning from a listener named Christopher. Christopher is 17 years old and he's living overseas in Kenya. He is the wow. son of missionary parents. Ooh, and he is a closeted atheist. And he's he's listening to our show. Yes, he's listening wow. to our show. He's in Kenya now, is he? He is in Kenya right now. Wow. The wonders of technology. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? From, from Kalamazoo to Kilimanjaro. <laughs> but uh, talk about a difficult situation. I mean, he too can't wow. really be open and honest about what he feels about it. it. Also because of how it might damage the reputation of his parents – and their in work their com- and their yeah, livelihood. In their community. Wow. And so I don't have any specific advice or anything for Christopher. I just wanted to bring it up as just an, another example of the, some of the challenges that people go through. Well, well, the one thing I can say about Christopher is he's 17, so he's only got a, a little while to go before he is a, a full-grown adult, can go off legally, on his own yeah. legally. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that works in Kenya, but he is, I'm assuming. Um, it sounds like they're American. Uh, American citizens because they're, they're living as missionaries, missionaries in Kenya. Um, but wow, what a what a situation to be in. I, I, I'm surprised too, quite frankly, about the response to uh, what we said to Jackie is that 
people were largely in agreement with us. Listening to it again, I thought, ooh, we're going to get a lot of people saying, you know, grow a pair, go out there and and uh, loud and proud proclaim your atheism, like we did when we spoke to the the teacher. That's um, right. Who, we had a couple angry listeners with that one who felt that we were somehow encouraging people to stay in the closet. Yeah. And Whereas I feel that was just a misunderstanding of what we were talking about. This was, yes. a, this was a guy in, his, in a role as a teacher right. uh, talking about speaking about his atheism from the podium. And uh, that was the issue that we said we didn't find it moral to evangelize for atheism. We weren't speaking at all about him being in the closet. Uh, right. But I made the comment in the last episode that it's not worth burning bridges – with family over metaphysical issues. And I thought one of our listeners had a really thoughtful and eloquent response to that. And they were saying, the other side is if you hold in what you truly believe from people, that bridge will rot over time. Mm. And his advice was when dealing with family to uh, when you are at your emotional best and you can handle it to share that with your family yes. and then just hunker down for a little while and realize that you're going to have to endure a lot of nasty things from them for a while while they're adjusting to right your new situation. But sometimes it has to be on your terms too mm-hmm. and say, hey, you've got you've got a year to either and accept me for who I am or you're losing me from your life. It's not I'm losing you necessarily. You're You're losing me if you can't accept me for who I am. Anyways, we're really yeah. appreciative for all the thoughtful responses and comments that people had to that to that email. And speaking of deconversions, have you heard the gossip about a celebrity who may be leaving their faith? Michael Jackson? Well, Michael Jackson's left the planet. I hear he's no longer an adherent. Yeah, and returned to whatever planet he was originally from. Yeah. Let's see, well, let's go through the celebrities. Miley Cyrus? No. No, that doesn't sound right. Paris Hilton? Who what cares? would she be deconverting from? Uh, I, I have no idea. The Church of Vanity and Bullshit? Uh, quite likely. Uh, let's see. Um, well, and, and there's always the media's favorite, Tom Cruise. No, but you're getting warmer. You're yeah. getting a lot warmer. Tom Cruise, yeah, Boy. Hudson. Uh, uh, is it uh, uh, Mr. Saturday Night Fever himself, John Jeez, Travolta? You said we were going to the disco tonight. Oh, man. Yes, yes, John Travolta. The gossip published in the British newspaper, the Daily Mail, which is that the one that's just pretty much regarded as a tabloid? That was a New York Great Times, Britain. I thought. I yep. forget. Uh, probably. There's the Guardian. It's like USA yeah. Today. I'm not sure. It's one, one of those, one of those it, Great it's Britain not, newspapers. It's not the most it's reputable. It's not yeah. very reputable. Anyways, they, they had suspicions that John Travolta, because of the recent tragedy in his life of his, his son dying, mm-hmm. uh, his son who also had autism, yes, that he may be disillusioned with the church and contemplating a split from it. They're never going to let him go. That's the, that's the uh, rumors that they're never going to let him go because through all the process of, of uh, being a Scientology member, you have to give up so much personal information that they got the goods on him and... Whatever he's ever so done So they'll wrong. just blackmail him? That's the rumor. You do so many of these public confessions within the church and these things are documented and sometimes, yeah, whenever anybody splits from the church, then they can use these reports to discredit your testimony. It's a brilliant de- Scientology is like the Iranian government. This is creepy where they drag people in and make them write confessions. And it might seem crazy, but let's delve into Scientology and maybe it won't seem crazy anymore. 
Yeah, maybe not. Let's yeah, see. I'm sure. <laughs> but before we transition, I should briefly mention that John Travolta, uh, according to his own personal press agent, has not switched his mind on Scientology. Quote, there is no change in the relationship between the Church of Scientology and John. He is a member and it's as it was now and forever. So, now, and they, they actually mean that with Scientology. Yes, yes. Forever. You sign a million-year contract or something because, like that. Yeah, when, uh, you're, when you're in Scientology, you'll be staying alive for a while. Uh, that's the kind of punish attempt huh? at humor that I would ordinarily expect out of Luke. Yeah. You'd only find that in Pulp Fiction. Ooh. And that was nice. even more reaching. Not to be out to Battlefield Earth. Uh, I had no way to fit that in, but I wanted to make fun of it. So, Battlefield Earth makes fun of itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, speaking of Battlefield Earth, which is a movie written by L. Ron Hubbard. Well, the, based on a book written by, by L. Ron Hubbard. Who's who, from, who was born uh, near where I live, uh, where I'm from in Nebraska. Oh, really? He's yes. one of your people. He's, he's a, well, I wouldn't say that, but uh, we're not all like that. But uh, we, they do, we do like to grow up and we aspire to have our own cults. So. Yeah, okay. Well, that's good. So what, what uh, can we learn about Scientology beyond what South Park has already taught us? For a basic list of Scientologist beliefs, I went to the BeliefNet. Com. Always a good source. Yeah, there are a lot better sources. The thing is, and, and this is a problem when talking about Scientology or any sort of secretive sect or cult, if these things are a secret, sort of some of their doctrines and rituals and other things are being kept from the public at large and even from adherence to the faith until they reach a certain level. Right. If we that's see the case with, with Mormonism too. Yeah. How do we know? What information that we're getting about these practices, how much of it is legitimate, mm -hmm. how much of it is people just making this up, how much of it are people that have – they're already angry at the church if they've left and so they might be exaggerating. These these are some of the problems from an evidence standpoint, knowing what their beliefs are. So rather than go to a lot of internet forums, uh, I decided to just take a, a pretty mainstream site Right. You just had to go and get audited? As far as, far as their list of beliefs are. but uh, Because Scientology is like the Hotel California. You can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. <laughs> well, if you look at the comments on things like informational ones, they say, you could tell this is not written by a member because they get facts wrong. Well, if you're an organization and people have misunderstandings, you could clear it up if you want. Yeah. Just, just put out the facts. But obviously, that's not yeah. part of their... They're kind of... Noncommittal on the idea of a god, whether or not there's some sort of deity. Sure. That's not something that's all that important. Uh, they believe basically there's this life force or energy called theta. It's transcendent to the universe. It's within everything in the universe. This rock, that tree, it binds us together. <laughs> <laughs> Looking found some quack, I should say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of Yoda-ish. You can laugh, but does that not sound like Which force? is also an, an intergalactic religion. From the mind of a not-so-good sci-fi George author. Lucas is not, a, uh, is not a Scientologist, though, to my knowledge. Just a bad writer. Oh. It's true. Yeah. Can we do <laughs> Anyway. I won't. We've become Hollywood gossip today. I'm Let's, taking uh, the mic off. <laughs> all right. More on Scientology. Uh, all humans are immortal, spiritual beings called Thetans. Humans are capable of reaching nearly godlike states. 
if they go through all the right Scientology practices. In right. fact, I've heard Skeptics Guide to the Universe talk about this a lot on their show, uh, the different Scientology superpowers that you can gain. That's and right. some, some of them are hilarious. I won't even try to repeat them here. Just recommend listeners to that fine podcast. What happens after death? Basically, they have kind of a reincarnation scheme, hmm. only you can reincarnate on different planets and stuff like that. Cool. And so the idea is not all that too different from certain forms of Buddhism is that we have in past lives and in this current life, we have problems that are keeping us from realizing our true nature as an immortal spirit. As, until we can somehow recover from these traumas, we are going to be stuck in this mortal state that we are in here, mm. this, this flesh-bound We can't transcend. State. Yes. So that, uh, sounds, so that sounds Buddhist and normal there. Yeah. Or actually. almost Gnostic in some ways. Right. These harmful acts are imprinted, they say, in the reactive mind, and it leads to irrational behavior. So how do you deal with all these harmful acts that are imprinted on your mind? Well, you guys have heard of the e-meter, right, mm -hmm. and auditing. Right. Uh, you go through this basic process called auditing. It's it's like their pseudoscience -y version of counseling. Right. And in fact, they're very anti any sort of traditional psychological counseling uh, or, or therapy. Yep. Yeah, yeah, they're very that, much against Jeremy, that. Jeremy, Jeremy, you're glib. You don't understand. <laughs> Sorry. You're a liar. What are you hiding? We're, we're saying this because these are some of the standard catchphrases that they will use against anybody who's criticizing the church. Uh, but the, the way this e-meter works is, right, they attach it to a person. They have uh, their auditor ask them a series of questions and the idea is that anything that's setting off your reactive mind will create a spike in the e-meter. Mm. Right? So as soon as you – find that spike in the e-meter, you know that, oh, we found something here. This is something that's been imprinted onto your reactive mind that we can remove. And then so they go through their counseling and then after it's not setting off the e-meter again, presumably, mm -hmm. then you're pronounced clear. Now, and they have different levels. Is, is there a difference between the e-meter and a polygraph machine? Because I, it, from what you're saying and, and the way I've always visualized it is it's a very similar set up. I don't know. I haven't seen one. Yep. I haven't even seen pictures of one. From what I hear and some of the articles that I've read, I don't think it's even a polygraph. Oh, really? It might just be a gizmo. Actually just hooked up to a uh, a small Sudanese child with a pen. <laughs> <laughs> you go through these different stages and different levels and of course the Each the one. more auditing you go through the more expensive it is they they charge a lot of money for this well because it's a process. very expensive process yeah and the, so the more rich you are the higher you can ascend in the in the church's ranks with each level you become progressively more clear mm -hmm. clear is the term they use to mean you're you don't have these uh negative imprinting right and you get more secret knowledge they let you know more and more about the secret stuff yeah I'm just gonna start calling my students suppressive persons if they piss me off you're ASP. Get out of here. <laughs> well, what are suppressive persons for people who don't know? Seems to me that's anybody who like asks too many questions or is uh, that, uh, that seems obtuse or uh, an impediment to their, uh, you know, to their philosophy. At people all. who are imposing these uh, what anti-Thetan influences. <laughs> 
Well, people are pers- persecuting the church right. in any sort of way. So I guess we would be suppressive yes, persons. obviously. Oh, nice. It's, it's mostly a problem if the suppressive person is a former Scientologist and has family members of and course. stuff who are in the church because – Scientologists are not supposed to associate or spend time with suppressive persons uh, because, well, I don't know what their official rationale is, but I think it's pretty obvious because they might help erode that person's confidence in right. the church. Right. And uh, and they're so they're a threat to to their belief system, and so yeah, you don't associate even with family members. Which is which is the way typical cults work, where you you shut yourself off more and more to the outside world and stay with the in crowd. So Scientology has been in the news a lot lately because of this recent string of articles by the Saint Petersburg Times. They last month ran a series, a three part series, exposing certain elements of the church. We'll have a link to this on our website. But uh, the first installment of the series is called the Truth Rundown. It's by Joe Childs and Thomas C. Tobin. This expose is unique because they gathered their evidence for the articles from four members of the church that have defected, all of them rather recently. High-ranking members. Very high-ranking. I think one of them is kind of just a secretary, but three of the people that are interviewed, Marty Rathburn, Mike Rinder, and Tom DeVocht, they are all in the inner circle of the church's management They've all occupied very important positions and have some very disturbing things to say, especially about the leader of the church, David Miscavige, the kind of CEO of the Church of Scientology. Fuhrer. Is that his actual title? Scientology is often discussed as where Hubbard deliberately set out to create a religion using a lot of principles of like group psychology. It's the same thing that what the, the Nazis did too. You know, and everyone like always makes fun of Nazi comparisons to everybody who's who's bad. But if you think about right. it, they, like let's have a, a a group that you have higher and higher levels with special terminology, you know, and special inner policing groups, like they talk about in Scientology, the Sea Org, mm. which is a group of of like uh, you know the people who are the the higher ups who are very kind of tough and they weed out all the weenies of that group. They're like all oh, this gung ho. It sounds exactly to me like they created within the, the Nazi structure, Gestapo people and, and like the SS. They're like, let's have a group within the group that polices. Their job is to be the internal, you know, policers of boundaries and things like that. Well, that was one thing that the article talked about that was so memorable is kind of the inner workings of this Sea Org. Do you guys know why they call it Sea Org? I don't. Hubbard was in the Navy, and so they have a lot of Navy themes. Yes. And ocean themes. Oh. And I didn't know this, but they uh, they used to run the entire operation of the Church of Scientology, their management and everything. These were all run off of ships. They can keep their interests really? global and international yeah. waters that way. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. They had a fleet of ships. Uh, Hubbard's was called suits. the Apollo. And yes, they have little uniforms, Navy uniforms with rank and Mixing everything Mixing in else. the Greek mythology into that, that just gets very confusing. So the Sea Org are the kind of the core group that run the church. And a lot of the a lot of the attention of the article was centered around the internal process of discipline, church discipline that they have for their members that are in this sea organization. One aspect that stands out the most clearly is just plain violence. And this is it's unclear that this is anyway a part of official church teachings. This may just be 
the actions of their leader, David Miscavige. But the testimonies from all the people interviewed Mm -hmm. seemed pretty unanimous that uh, Miscavige physically assaults members of the Sea Organization and top officials regularly. Uh, the, I mean the articles just go through a list of things and, and this is from just walking up to somebody and slapping them in the face to um, you know, grabbing people's ties, choking them, throwing them to the ground, slamming them against walls. Basically – and I think uh, a couple of people reported it this way, just basically beating the crap out of a lot of these members. Wow. If they step out of line, a lot of times the punishment is physical assault. And then encouraging these lieutenants to do so as well. So a lot of the people that uh, the the defectors reported that they, they themselves administered physical punishments. They claimed yep. because they were scared if they didn't, they'd be the next one, mm-hmm. it, which is what you commonly see and things like that. And, of course, the Scientology defenders are saying, well, those accusations are just to deflect blame from themselves. The you know, So it's a, it becomes a he said, she said about who started beating who first. Right. But it does sound as if the physical altercations, whoever instigated it, were part of the higher echelon of the organization. Yeah. Rathburn and Devok both said in the article that they were encouraged to attack other members. Sometimes it wasn't Miss Cavage saying specifically that they should go beat, beat up that guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was more a part of the culture and it was to try to show to – Miss Cavage and others that uh, that they weren't you know they weren't sissies that they were taking this seriously that they weren't going soft on the other members. This is this is fascinating to me because a lot of what I know about Scientology is the frozen aliens in a volcano kind of stuff, but really this is much more insidious because this it's this mentality that they're fostering as opposed to just. This weird mythology yeah, about right. I didn't think it was necessarily that the, the the articles that the series that were written for the paper weren't really specifically about the beliefs you know the no. metaphysics or right, anything right. it was more about the organizational tactics and yeah. not and the physical violence I just thought was one logical outcome of the authoritarian structure sure uh, that you when you play mind games with people and there's no accountability this is the type of thing that that happens well, in all kind of organizations and as like the that. as the, the top of the organization he is the the clearest of them all, right? So he's he has the superiority and, and not just he has the power, but he has this closer tie to this universal energy than anyone else. I'm not sure if that plays into it or not. Um, it certainly seemed that everybody held him in very high regard as at one point in the article they say he's an expert in every field. Um, but Oh, he's like uh, Kim Jong-il. It wasn't – there wasn't anything in there that said that he's somehow – that he has his position because he's more spiritually elevated. It it's not like, like a pope sort of thing. He's just more aggressive and, and, and uh, climb, uh, more of a climber than the rest mm. because apparently yeah, sure. he started off very young climbing the ropes and w- became just more aggressive and kind of was very good at setting people against each other and eliminating yeah. any opposition, which again is what you see in any organization like that where you'll have like loyalty tests – and, you know, like the the article describes the incident where they're all told to jump in the pool with their clothes on and things like that. And he manipulates people into, you know, into doing things by saying, uh, you know, if you don't do this, then you're not loyal or you're, you know, just yeah. get out if you can't handle it. According to Rathburn and Rinder, Miss Cavage really gains his status in the church as a result of just that. Yeah, uh, basically a power grab. Shortly after L. Ron Hubbard's death, he and Rathburn constructed a deception to the caretakers of Hubbard's estate where they 
snuck in and got some of Hubbard's last papers, kind of the, the final writings of L. Ron Hubbard. They lied to the caretakers saying that the FBI was going to be coming down to, to Hubbard's mm-hmm. home and seizing stuff. And so they needed to come in and protect these important documents. The internal politics, the descriptions of it in the article go on and on for pages. So I'm not going to even bother with specifics. Right. You can find the link on our website to these articles. But, but yeah, it was, it was basically an elaborate power grab. Uh, but back to what you said about uh, throwing people in the pool. In this C organization, conformity and compliance are maintained not just through physical violence but by mental abuse. Mm. This is at the hands of miscavige, but this works into things that are doctrines of the church such as overboarding. Is that like waterboarding only on top? I thought that's cute that they keep it within the Navy themes. You know, we're on a yacht. We don't have a pool. Jump in the ocean. You know. Yeah. Well. And I, I thought it was interesting, like that they had the, they interviewed some people who are on the yacht who who are still loyal members of Scientology, and they were like, "Well, yeah, we threw them over because, you know, yeah. we had to illustrate, uh, you know, you you either sink or swim in this group, so we wanted to like make it clear to them." How, how do yeah, they do? The church officials denied a whole lot of what was in these articles, but the overboarding stuff they seemed I to. Was, yeah, it's yeah, what they didn't deny. They were real defiantly, you know. Of course, we did this. How, do they still do overboarding? Well, let's we should explain what it is. It's it's not they don't actually throw them off the ship and leave them to die at sea. Mm. You get you got to make your way back on the ship after you get thrown off. Uh, yeah, it's meant to humiliate members yeah. for underperforming or some sort of ethical trans transgression. Oh, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> when I was reading this, the the the, the he said everything. Every story they described in the series as a he said, you know, she said thing, and the, so, the, so the defectors said they threw made us all jump in a pool, and we had to climb out and then sit there in wet clothes. And then the defenders of the church said they were life there were lifeguards present. <laughs> yeah, and you know, well, the pool was heated. <laughs> the there pool were was towels. heated. That's the wow. tough thing I think is funny. Yeah, yeah. But right, they're supposed to pile into these pools sometimes as a group, right, and confess their sins to one another. Which is how, let me read, which is how church spokesman Davis said he punished a subordinate. It was a guy who was blowing it and kept blowing it and kept blowing it, making mistakes and performing. It was my responsibility to uphold the ethical standards of the Sea Org. So, yeah, absolutely, I tossed the guy in. Wow. If they, they could have left years like ago, the goddamn front door wasn't locked, he said. If they have a problem with it, they could have walked out. Okay. Now, as we discussed, it's, yeah, sure, even if the front door isn't locked and they can just walk out, it's through these different confessions that they make the members go through. Which I think is brilliant, requiring people all the way up to do these audits where they talk about their, you know, their personal problems and then to make – Confessions you have and a things record like that. of it. If everyone yep. wants to leave, you have a record of everything they've ever done. That's right. Well, and so, and some of them probably no big deal. You want to leave? Great. Good. Oh, okay. Well, good we'll just send this you. press release, but, Dave, on your masturbatory fantasies, yeah. your infidelities, yep. your coke use, your whatever. Right. right. That's right. right. Ev- everything. I, especially just even even your own personal fantasies. The the things. Just right. imagining doing wrong. You're supposed to confess these things. So the people who get out and want to speak out against the the church are screwed. This is why we don't. You got to There are no. This thick. That's right. Worse and than that's Islam. Exactly what the church did with this article to discredit Rathburn and Rinder because they have documents of them saying, yes, I hit people. I abused people. Right. Uh, yes, I tried to make my importance to the group sound uh, – I tried to exaggerate that. 
and make it sound bigger than it was. They use all of these things to say, look, hey, we have we have sworn testimonies from these people that they're right. not reliable. And so why are you trusting their word for your article? He called himself a liar, clearly. Some of these are self-confessions. You have to write them. They're called formulas. You basically write an old, your own memo on the things that you've done wrong. Some of them are actually called security checks. Which shows me that if that's the term they're using for it, they know what's going on, right? They're, well, yeah. they're, they're preserving the group by getting dirt on the members inside of it. What they were saying in the article, uh, these security checks, these confessions help kind of preserve the power of the leader. Because if, anything, if anybody says something negative about Miscavige to another member – if they don't eventually disclose this in their own confessions, uh, some yeah. other member in the group will disclose it in theirs. And so it's it's kind of a way for people to spy on one another too. Oh, police. And this helps. Yeah, it's yeah. very Orwellian. Uh, the mm-hmm. same things that Orwell talks about like with you know communism and all those structures are like that where you get people wanting to climb up a hierarchy, get them to, to stab each other in the back on the way up. And then if they ever did want to leave, you have the goods on them. Wow. Um, Scientology freaks me out. Well, we're not going to spend as much time talking about some of the most disturbing things in the article. So I would encourage people to go read this series online. We're mostly interested in the in the aspects of this organization that are cult-like, that control group psychology to some degree. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff in here that's very interesting and, and different angles. Uh, for one, a cover-up of... I guess you could probably call it a negligent homicide. Lisa McPherson, a member of the church who basically was going through a mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I can't imagine why. Yeah. in in Well, she probably had some psychosis. Well, sure. Uh, but she couldn't get help for yeah. it either. I think this was in 1995 and that's exactly the thing. They took, they took her to this stronghold they have, the Fort Harrison Hotel – uh, which they call the flag for flagship. They got a lot of properties and real estate. Yeah. Well, they got a lot of money. This is in Clearwater, Florida. They took her there and they they put her up in the hotel, kind of isolated there for, what was it, like 17 days or so, I think. It was over two weeks. And in that time, they didn't allow her access to the hospital because they were afraid if she went there, she might go see a psychiatrist. Sure. She might get committed or something like might that. Get medication. Right. She wasn't given anything but like herbal remedies, aspirin and orange juice to help her with this. And she had people trying to break her down using Scientology methods around the clock, which was actually just aggravating her condition. By the time they actually drove her to the hospital and they passed four other hospitals on the way, they they went to a specific hospital where they knew there was a Scientologist doctor working there. Oh, gosh. They passed four other hospitals to get her there. By the time they even checked her into the hospital, she she had died of dehydration and a, and like a blood clot in her lungs that was due to her that was from her being isolated and and dehydrated all this time. So scary stuff there. They talk about this IRS scandal, which apparently is not new news, but I'd never heard of it. Where they before Miscavige was even in charge back in the days of Hubbard, where they. A Scientology member actually penetrated the IRS and used his position in in the group to get all sorts of documents. They were angry because the IRS had claimed them that they were a, a business 
They were a money-making institution. They were sure. not a religious group. Right. They're charging all this money for auditing and everything else. They're, they're a company. Of course, that meant all these donations to the group now for services and everything else were going to be taxed. And so they had a long battle with the IRS trying to reinstate their status as a religious organization. And yeah, at, at, the, at one point, they had members infiltrate the IRS and steal documents. I think L. Ron Hubbard, it never got traced back to him, but his wife was convicted of felony yeah, for doing I, that. I, I was aware of that. I'd rather get thrown overboard than go through IRS training. It seems to me that would be the most excruciating, you know. On page 7, section yeah. C, you'll notice the tax code from Long. Yeah. So, of course, then the government cracked down on the church. Right. And uh, they kind of had a bloodletting phase where they were getting rid of people who were associated with this and everything. But it, um, they share the, the rest of the story, which is Scientology created different subgroups that weren't – people couldn't see how they were attached to them and then – got these guys caught up in all sorts of lit- litigation, tons and tons and tons of lawsuit, exhausting their litigation budget pretty much. And on top of it, they filed a bunch of Freedom of Information Act uh, requests and got as much information about the IRS as they could, had their lawyers scan through these things for anything scandalous and were like publishing op-eds in the New York Times and other places to discredit the IRS to try to show that they were, you know, aggressively attacking. Oh, trying um, to turn the public against the IRS? Yeah, that's like a that's hard gonna campaign. Be, yeah, you admire yeah. anyone who uh, takes heads and balls much, to take on the IRS. Not much of an uphill battle there. Uh, but, but anyways, the story is IRS, when they caved in, it was, it was basically Miscavige just walking into the IRS building requesting an interview with the chief of the organization and then saying, hey, we can make all this lit- litigation go away. We can just drop these lawsuits. If, and, and, it, and it ended up in a deal where the church paid them like $12 million or something like that. And uh, change. Yeah. Yep. Nothing for them. And then they received status as a religious organization. So that's, you know, we talk about when does a cult become a religion, at least in the legal sense here in America when for taxation purposes. It happened right there yep. in the office mm. with somebody at the top saying as a budget decision saying, well, OK, we need to just cave into these guys. Wow. So there's all sorts of interesting information for people to check out. But, uh, but what about this aspect of the, the cult aspect it brings up a broader question of what is the difference between a cult and a religion? Was, was Christianity a cult at one time? Was is Islam yeah. a cult? And that's the big question. What defines a cult? And we've talked about on this show before. Is, is a religion just a cult with more members or mm-hmm. is there something distinctively different about the subculture in a cult? If Dawkins shoved me off a ship, would I be in a cult then? You're the biggest idiot I've ever seen. I'm sorry, sir. I'll do better. Get out of my sight. Read my book, The Ancestor's Tale. <laughs> Clearly, the term cult has a pejorative connotation, and anybody who's a member of a religion bristles when you say, well, that's just a cult. Yeah. And, you know, because they, we tend to think of cults, the, the definition of cults are usually associated with things like Scientology, uh, Jonestown and the I People's I was going to say Temple, a lot of these suicide cults the, kind uh, of thing. California 70s stuff with Charlie Manson. Right. Um, or, but then some people apply the term to, like, Mormonism. Or uh, the LDS Church, or things like you know, which the, I I actually would, Jehovah's Witness even. 
there is a gray area there where you say, well, if something is, is cult, if you're happy and there's like a little Jesus movement where you're handing out flowers, it's not a cult. But then if you start, you know, mixing Kool-Aid with cyanide, then it becomes a cult. Mm. Uh, a lot of it is there's no precise definition, I guess, in a lot of the sociological literature about when when a cult does. But but people kind of can agree on features of negative cults. That is when something when something has a, a negative connotation, there are certain features that well, become common. One of the best suggestions I was reading about Luke was that cults say if you were to try to distinguish them from sects, just splinter groups of religious sects, sectarian groups tend to form from the existing religious group. And cults tend to be something novel. They're they're completely new. They are not coming out of a previous religious yoke. For that reason, they tend to be just inherently protesting some sort of aspect of the culture. They're going to be on the margins of religious and social life just to begin with. And outside of their control, too. So right. organizations, actually existing religions uh, don't uh, like cults because they're not able to control them within like an ecclesiastical structure. But yeah, so some of the common features, if you look at these things, some of the research shows that you find commonalities. One of there is that when you have uh, members, they tend to isolate them and then uh, assume control over them. So mm-hmm. if you are, you know, anybody who's out there trying to start a cult, you might want to take all this time, is that you that you <laughs> want to ha- you don't want people that can go off and intermix with the majority culture, mm-hmm. get crazy ideas like critical thinking and whatnot. You want people, that's why you see these p- people often hunkering down in bunkers or, you know, like the Waco, Texas group having compounds. There's the compound. When you re- when your church structure is referred to as a compound, you know, that's, that's a good a, sign. That's a good sign yeah, that you've isolated the people. <laughs> uh, and then also when you uh, get, when you trawl for trainees, you want people then to go through some sort of arduous initiation process. So a lot of people have said like are the Marines or like a fraternity occult because they mm. do a similar thing. Yeah. Yeah. You want initiates to, and this goes into cognitive dissonance theory, to bust ass to, to make them feel special that if they can make it through this period of Hell Week, then they're a member of this group because cognitive dissonance theory says if you go through all this stuff and you look at your behavior and say, is this worth it? It must be worth it because look, I just had my ass paddled for a week or right. I was sleep deprived or I cut off my family for this. Why would I have gone through this Therefore, if it weren't worth right. it? Yeah, it's the, yeah. And even before the initiation process, an aspect of cults, right, is that they, they try to recruit a certain type of person. Often that people they think are like seekers or people that they can like are, are marginal with their you know families anyway that they can easily cut them off or that they're like real busy bees, eager type people. So that kind of breaks with brainwashing, that you could take somebody who's just resistant, who's just completely ordinary, not leaning towards any views like that, and you could, against their will, kind of control their minds and force them into some belief. On on the contrary, actually, the the cults aren't just breaking down somebody no. from from some sort of state there's there really they're no, actually recruiting people right they can't who put they any think. any mindset there i mean they can give you new ideas but the uh, the basic groundwork has to be already laid yeah brainwashing really doesn't have any existence because you people willingly do things rather than being coerced into doing things yeah and so you want people to often that what they do is through initiation processes to debilitate people physically like exercise and having them stay up you know handing out flowers for 20 hours you know, yeah. uh, having group uh, in the Scientology article, they said that he often like woke people up at two and four o'clock in the morning meetings. Yeah, and so, jog to the other side of the compound. So you want people who are not who don't have resources where they're able to think clearly and right. and defend themselves. And again, that you know, for better or for worse, the military does that in basic training too. Yeah. When you get people up at four o'clock in the morning by pounding garbage cans, they're not able to say, "Huh, this is kind of 
I don't know if I want to do this. Right, and part of that could be like a mentally wearing them down, like hours and hours of auditing. um, Yeah, auditing uh, and interrogations. You know, we know this from Guantanamo too, that if you keep people up and ask the same question over and over, why did you do it? Why did you do it? And the the cults do that because eventually the person says, what do I have to say to make it go away? You can actually get them believing things by repeated questioning and, you know, food deprivation. Uh, And then the the sense of um, you want to have people... You want to instill confusion and uncertainty where they're not actually sure of their previous system of thought being correct or not. You want to you want to set it up to where they're um, where the the previous lines of what was appropriate and not appropriate are blurred. Mm-hmm. You know, and so w- the things that c- that could have been crazy, you know, a few months ago when you were thinking clearly, don't seem so crazy anymore because you could set it up. Ours group is the one that really loves you. Your family, they don't love you. That might seem absurd, but when you when you are in this environment, it's not so absurd. Yeah, and then, and then what we talked about before, a lot of the rituals have to do with humiliation. Physical violence is part of it, but the broader psychological part is making people feel guilty and humiliating them for having thoughts, you know, or you're accusing like them the of Catholic being Church. Oh, yeah. Remember the People's Temple with Jim Jones, you know, he kind of followed some of these things by removing the group out to Guyana. But even when he was right. in San Francisco, he had people stand up and give confessions of disloyalty. Yes. He, you know, tell the tell the congregation you were thinking about leaving and the person is eventually, you know, sobbing. and But then providing them an out. You can resolve all this if you just come back to the fold. Mm-hmm. We love you. We would not never, you right. know. So when you give people uh, an equation between if you think independently or if you have doubts about us or leave, you're guilty of blah, blah, blah. But... We can offer you. Can all go we'll away. Take if you you just, we'll if you we, take you back. We still right. love you. You know, and clearly, a charismatic leader, uh, a head of a group, can do these sort of things and play people like this. Miss Cabbage or, or Jim Jones was a brilliant mm-hmm. psychologist because he could set people against each other to to have right. a, a, accusation wars, and then he would come in and solve it all. Right. And Jim Jones was the people was of this these article would would describe him just going out out of the blue and just slapping them in the face, and they would think, "What did I do?" What did I do wrong? Yeah. And sometimes they would confess to things just for no other reason than they thought, well, to if I say it. what Miscavige yeah. wants to hear, then he will get off my back and then I'll be accepted back in. Well, and it and, may not even be that conscious. It may just be I was attacked. Clearly, I did something wrong. What could I possibly have done wrong? Um, I misspoke. Yeah. That, yeah, that that must have been it. I must have said something that I shouldn't have said because people otherwise do that in, in religions all the time. Yeah, when, when they confess to things, if you make people go to confession or have people own up, let's say you know in religious schools, you'll have things telling everybody that they're going to go to hell and everything, and and they'll confess to anything. And right. Well, and that's one of the interesting things about this is this doesn't seem to be anything different than a lot of elements you'll already find in a church. It's just maybe to it's not a difference in kind, maybe a difference in degree. Did you have a bad or the right combination? Did you have a boot camp experience, Jeremy? Okay, yeah. Room? Luke knows what I was going to say next because I brought this up. No, I was. He needs to talk about this, Dave. Oh yeah, you can tell us. All right, we'll, we'll be your. Uh, what are the? I was twelve years out? old, and no. Um, gosh, now you put me on the defensive. <laughs> no, all I was going, I was. Uh, Luke gave me a summary of some of this research on cults and I was going through their their different steps of what they call coercive persuasion. This is the new term for brainwashing. Hmm. Brainwashing is a little overgeneralized. It has some of the wrong connotations and I think what the psychologists were trying to get across in this summary was that what we think of as brainwashing isn't anything new and additional and extra than just normal social psychology. 
just the type of things that go on in a group. Um, if we want to draw attention to something, we should look at the coercive aspect of that. And so they call it coercive persuasion. But yeah, I was looking at some of these features and I was thinking this describes like these Christian summer camps I used to go to when I was a little oh, kid. Sure. Some, some of them are admittedly stretching. Uh, but but for, for one, a group isolation, part of the summer camp – and we even talked about that before the the youth camp started is oh how great it is that we're going to you know we're going to go off to this camp and we're going to be a place where everybody's going to be christian and the and secular we can, world can't yeah, touch us right right and we're not going to have any of these distractions uh, like movies and music and everything mm-hmm. else like that we're all just going to be together right talking about jesus physical the uh, the next step is physical debilitation and exhaustion. Now, that's a bit of a stretch, I admit. But we were, you know, they had us running around doing field games and uh, activities all day. By the time it was done with, I mean, we were really beat. Um, Not literally beat. No, no. So I'm I'm admitting that's quite a bit of a stretch. But then they, you know, confusion and uncertainty uh, or guilt and humiliation. There were all these things that went on in these sermons about, you know, are you a Christian when you're in your just in church and just in youth group, or are you a Christian when you're in your school with your friends and everything like that? Are you listening to music that you know God wouldn't be pleased mm, yeah. with? And they would f- set up these situations where you'd feel awful. This all sounds very familiar right. to me too. And then you, you would have to tell the group. You'd have to go, yeah, I've been hiding a Nirvana tape uh, under my mattress <laughs> and everything. No, my mom doesn't want me listening. Do you remember in Jesus Camp that little blonde head bowl oh cut gosh, kid where he was? He, they made him confess heart. on the stage like that he sometimes he has his doubts about the Bible or yes. something like that, and then they kind of break him down into that these. kid breaks my heart. He every was eventually time. speaking in tongues. Don't worry, he was speaking yeah. in tongues by the end of the camp. I know because he's the one who expresses any doubt. And he is just clearly suffering because of because of the social rejection thing, and and you can watch the other kids shrink away in horror as he says yeah. things like, "Sometimes I, I, I question the Bible." So this isn't as bad as Jim Jones or David Miscavige or any of these sort of things. But I was just noticing little cultic elements sure. in my own upbringing, and it was kind of creeping me out. Well, look at uh, let's take LDS Church, the Mormons. I mean, they have a system where they uh, where they try to also keep their members, you know, isolated. That they have them uh, when you do it, like say, like a mission trip. Those those yep. kids are that's, taken. That's out, a big out of part that, of their young adulthood, where they have to go learn learn their language if they're going overseas. Mm-hmm. They keep them, you know, uh, on a mission trip. You have your partner where you're never alone. You know, maybe to go. You know, right. uh, have your morning constitutional, but other than that, you're right next to that person. You have to then, you know, they don't. Uh, nothing is permitted other than what they give you. Uh, uh, you're out there. Sometimes they have them tracking through swamps and converting people. You know, when they're malarial. So it's a lot of these elements. When you come back from something like that, even if you don't have any converts, think about the process in your own mind. My God, I just gave up, you know, two years of my young life for this. It must be this the must best be thing it. ever. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, and then an, another thing with, with Mormonism that matches the features of some of these cults like Scientology and other groups is that they, they don't let you leave so easily. One of our listeners was going through this not too long ago. Uh, back in January, Dave and I interviewed a listener for the first time. Oh, for it was the way show. back then? Yeah. Oh. We had a listener, Joshua Allen, who is a, a former Mormon. A he, Mormon? <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, 
Josh had written a, a blog post about his adventures leaving the Church of Latter-day Saints, and we called him up and asked him about it. All right, we are here with Joshua Allen, the author of the Battling Bullshit blog, and he's here to talk to us about his experiences with the Mormon Church. Hello, Josh. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts. Hi, Jeremy and Dave. It's a pleasure to speak with both of you. I've been a fan for quite some time. So, You formerly were a member of the Mormon Church, correct? Yeah, that is correct. And uh, unfortunately, my story is not all that extraordinary. It's actually... Uh, fairly typical, actually, of what, what happens when you uh, try to make, I guess, your membership with the Church null and void. Uh, you kind of get this run around from the Church, uh, and they kind of, I guess they just assume that you don't know your rights, and they take advantage of that. Well, let's get into the story uh, of what happened. Now, first of all, you were a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, but then you deconverted, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Actually, um, my almost my entire family and pretty much everyone I know is uh, Mormon because I I grew up in Utah and that's just kind of how it is here. Uh, probably about I think like seventy three percent of the population is Mormon. So um, I didn't really start going a lot when I was younger, but I when you grow up here, you're sort of a I guess a de facto Mormon just because of how the laws are and everyone you know is mm-hmm. kind of talking to you about these things. So I didn't really actually start going regularly until I was about 12 years old. I had moved into a new town. I wanted to meet friends and started going, got interested in it. It's, um, I guess, satisfies a part of your mind that kind of lives for fantasy and wants to be flattered and told that you're, you know, kind of this cosmically significant being. And um, I really was interested in it. My family, my parents, anyway, started going with me. When did you first start having doubts about the Mormon Church? What precipitated that? Uh, my personality is just such that I ask probably one or two more questions than most people would. I I don't tend to stop where most people would go. So so I just started looking into things, and the, I guess the the first thing that fell apart was actually my belief in God. I sort of stumbled upon somewhere a couple arguments against the existence of God, and they troubled me for a little while. It was kind of the uh, the Homer Simpson can God make a burrito so hot even he can't eat it kind of thing, and. Uh, some, some of those things kind of troubling. I ended up when I was 19. If you're a 19-year-old Mormon male, you're expected to go serve a two-year mission. Right. I had just a few nagging doubts. It wasn't anything really severe, but uh, I, I couldn't really bring myself to go and preach it to people. Mm-hmm. Really uncomfortable choice to make to not go on a mission when you live here, because when you're that age, every time you run into an adult who's also LDS, the first question they ask you is, you know, have you turned in your application to go on a mission? Where do you want to go? Um, it's just question after question about going on a mission. There's a lot of social pressure right. to go. And I would imagine a lot of your peers are gone because they're all on these missions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, they're kind of dropping off one by one. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't quite ready to do that, um, and I had a friend inside the church who was a recruiter for a technical school in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, he was a convert to the Mormon Church, who had been disowned by his family when he when he joined the church. So I think he was kind of sympathetic to the kind of feelings I was having. And so he, I talked to him, and he's like, hey, I got this opportunity. You can go down to school and kind of get out of here for a little while. And I ended up doing that, and um, just getting exposed to a different culture was 
really significant eye-opening event. That's really where things started to fall apart because I, you know, living in Phoenix, you see people doing things that, that I had been taught my whole life were just, you know, evil. Like drinking coffee and that sort of thing? Yeah, terrible things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, yeah, just seeing that and seeing that people can still be happy and, and live productive lives and, and probably I think they're even more happy. I, I would yeah, hope so. Yeah. I, I, you know, you hear a lot of deconversion stories following the same route. It seems like there has to be some sort of escape from that context, either, you know, by location or going to school or something like that, where you, you have to finally get out under that constant reinforcing pressure uh, to have that free space to even think. You know, then, probably what Mormon missionaries, what what arguments they're going to make, how they're going to do about things. How is that for you when you're visited by Mormon missionaries yourself? It's actually fairly easy to, I guess, once you once you know the arguments, to take on a Mormon missionary because it's just the same thing over and over again. And their attitude towards atheists is <laughs> it's kind of revealed in a, a couple Book of Mormon stories. There's three or four prominent, I guess, atheist skeptic characters in the Book of Mormon. And the stories of all of them are almost identical in the book. They they preach that there's no God, you can't know that there's a God, you can't know that Christ is going to return, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they will inevitably in the story ask for a sign, and then, you know, some terrible thing will happen to them. And then as they're laying in the street dying, they will confess that they knew there was a God all along. Oh. And, and then they're like, you know, trampled to death or something. So, <laughs> they, they don't a cheery really, book. Yeah, it's great. Um, they, but they don't really take atheism seriously. I think that they, for one thing, they, they think that that basically means you don't believe in anything at all. And then they also think there's this underlying idea that you actually do believe in God and they just have to get you to admit it. Mm-hmm. So right. the arguments yeah. that they use are unappealing to, to an atheist because they, they're just really ineffective arguments. Um, but you can see how that would be a good way to insulate themselves from any sort of cognitive dissonance because they don't have to listen to your side. They don't have to consider your arguments because they know that that's all just posturing. Deep down, you know there's a God as much as they do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, um, I guess that's pretty much the basis of, of that entire religion in a lot of ways is that I guess it's assumed that everyone puts on a faith. Sadly, people within that church have a they feel like they have an obligation to always appear as though everything's going perfectly, um, to always portray the look of success, and unfortunately it's just not really working out for them. I mean, we have the highest rate of antidepressant use here in the state, and they, they don't use, you know, coffee and, and tobacco and things that people will see you using, but we also, here in Utah, lead the country in abuse of, you know, pharma, uh, pharmaceutical drugs and non-illicit drugs. And why is that acceptable under Mormon code, but alcohol and caffeine and cigarettes are not? That's uh, That seems like a bizarre double standard. The official doctrine where that all comes from is called the Word of Wisdom, and it never actually specifically mentions caffeine. Right. Um, but I think that's the big one that's focused on here, and specifically in coffee. I mean, I think most Mormons probably drink quite a bit of Coca-Cola. I think the church owns stock and Pepsi-Cola. Oh, nice. <laughs> And there's several bottling plants here in town. I, I know that Brigham Young University, which is our version of uh, Liberty University, mm-hmm. they don't have any caffeinated uh, soft drinks there. But Do they have morning classes? Yeah, I don't know. People in, in that city wake up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. It's a strange... <laughs> they, live in, they call it Happy Valley. It's really kind of a surreal Twilight Zone kind of place. Everyone is super happy and super psyched to meet you. So 
Uh, I guess they don't need coffee. They got Jesus. But uh, <laughs> Well, one thing that could potentially shatter that image is also uh, people who are unsatisfied with the Mormon Church, people who are leaving the Mormon Church for whatever reason. And, and, uh, and that's how we found out about you. You had been an ex-Mormon for years, but would still be counted on their registries, right, as as a member? Yeah, they they keep um, uh, you know, a list of, of membership. You know, they have records on everyone who's members, and they every so often they'll issue a publication saying, you know, we have this many uh, members, and it's kind of a, they use it as this kind of justification for we're doing the right thing. Look, you know, we're growing, we've got millions of members, and... I'd never really, until recently, wanted to have my name removed from from their records because it just I was done with them. I didn't really care that much to have any more contact with them. But once somebody pointed out to me, they're like, "No, you're still, you know, technically counted as a member, using your name in a way to promote their cause." I couldn't really continue to be a part of that, especially this year where they're going after Proposition Eight. Kind of butting their nose in business that they just don't need to be involved in. Um, I mean, it's it's bad enough that all the laws in the legislature in Utah are kind of dictated by Mormon principles. But if they want to step outside of Utah and then go into California and uh, kind of move out, that's just not something I could support. Even just having my name in a database somewhere, I just couldn't be a part of that. So I finally had to make it official and. Uh, I wrote up this resignation letter, turned it in, and uh, that's kind of where I'm at right now. And, and you did your research before you sent in your resignation letter of exactly what you had to include to make it official and, and all of that, right? This wasn't just uh, an angry, screw you guys, I'm going home letter. You you did what you needed to do to uh, excommunicate yourself. Yeah, I, I did look it up because I had had a friend that uh, turned in a similar resignation letter a few years ago, and she got this letter back from, from the church saying, basically, we're not going to let you resign quite that easy. Uh, we'll have a couple people come out to your house and and uh, try to talk you down, as it were. And uh, she was pretty upset by that. It, she had not been a member for quite some time. She'd gone through a lot of hell with her family uh, through leaving the church and kind of labeled as an apostate and a sinner by her family and really didn't feel like she was still part of the family. And so to get this one final insult from the church as well, saying, you know, we don't really take what you're saying seriously, and we just need to fix you, and then you'll be okay, which is pretty upset, and I didn't I didn't really want to go through that because I just don't really care to deal with that church anymore, so I did some research. I looked around on a few websites. MormonNoMore.com has excellent detailed instructions on exactly what you need to include. So when you put a religion, the Bill of Rights protects you to do, do it on your own terms, and Basically, once you hand in a resignation letter, you're no longer a member, and so anything that the church does after you you turn in that resignation, any discipline, anything like that, um, is technically not really constitutional. And in fact, there's been a few cases where people have sued their churches uh, for being excommunicated after turning in resignations. Mm. So, so, so am I to understand then that if you really want to get your your resignation letter to be looked at and approved, you you have to you have to allege some sort of threat of litigation or at least show awareness that you would know how to how to do that? Yeah, I, I don't think you need to necessarily have to threat, um, make a threat of litigation, but you do have to hit certain points. You have to let them know, number one, that you're resigning. I think that has to be uh, stated specifically that way, that it's effective immediately as soon as, you know, whoever opens this letter reads it. got to let them know that, you know, you want your... Uh, 
resignation request to be processed without delay, that you're no longer subject to uh, disciplinary action and you're aware of that. There's a lot of precautions and things that you should write in the letter, which again is spelled out on mormonnomore.com and several other ex-Mormon websites, exmormon.org, postmormon.org. They all have instructions on this, but still a pretty large percentage of people, even though um, even though you'll write in the letter that you don't want to have any more contact with the church at all, they still send this letter out. Um, interestingly enough, from a guy named Greg Dodge, and so they call it the Dodge Letter, <laughs> which I think is pretty funny. I mean, I That's great. Yeah, it's a good name for him, but uh, yeah, you get this letter saying, you know, this is a local matter, you'll have to talk to your local authorities about quitting, which is not true, and the Church knows that's not true. You don't have to talk to local authorities. They've actually gone through lawsuits over that before. Um, so they know it's not true, but they just assume you don't know that, and they kind of play around with you, and it really shows a disrespectful attitude towards, I guess, my respectful letter of uh, resignation. Right. You tried to play by their rules, and they they ignored them and continue yeah. to harass you. Yeah, but I, I guess the worst part is that I research this, and I know what uh, what my rights are, but a lot of people don't, and when they get toyed with, they feel pretty helpless about it, and mm-hmm. it really, when I got that letter back, I, I kind of expected it, and I thought it would be funny, but when I actually read it, I found it quite insulting, and, you know, they included this pamphlet from uh, the leadership of the Church inviting you to I think the quote is, come back to the happiness you once knew. And, yeah, I mean, they, they really treat it as though, you know, you've gone into this horrible lifestyle of just sin and debauchery. And, right. Um, there's several groups of people, I guess, that will come and visit you throughout the month, throughout the week, if you're an active Mormon family, or even if you're inactive, as long as your name is in the church records, you'll inevitably get visitors. Home teachers is one... Um, such that the visitors, there's also something called the Visiting Teachers, there's a Relief Society. Basically what all these are are just um, members of your local congregation who are assigned uh, to check in on certain families. They stop by, and ultimately it's, I think, a tactic to let you know that your peers are going to be stopping by all the time. You know, it would be a difficult thing if you're going through um, some questions and some problems with faith for a home teacher to come by and you get into that with them and tell them, you know, I'm having doubts. Mm-hmm. Quite uncomfortable with, you know, somebody that you sit next to at church who you know is, is going to have some pretty negative opinions about you if you start to express concerns about the church because within that church, ultimately, if you begin to doubt, it's because the devil got a hold of you. And so you don't want these people that you know from church and maybe from your neighborhood coming by and beginning to suspect you and maybe be a little bit wary of you. And these are people that you share a community with. And so there's a lot of pressure to, to keep up the happy face when they stop by. And maybe once a week and maybe once a month. But there's always some group that's going to be coming by and making sure everything's going good for you. Is there anything the church can do to help you? And in a way, it seems pretty nice that they would, you know, send somebody by to... Yeah. But it's intimidation, you know. Yeah, but really that's, that's all it comes down to is just somebody checking in on you. Just a way to let you know that even when you're not at church, we're still around. Yeah, unfortunately that was the, the last straw on the camel's back that, that forced me to turn in a letter because somebody stopped by the house. It's been, you know, 10 years since I've been a member. I just moved back to Utah from New Jersey, and not a month later I've got home teachers at my home asking for me. And it was pretty awkward, because they obviously, they didn't know me. They didn't know right away that uh, I wasn't part of the church, and as soon as I mentioned that uh, 
that I was, and things got real weird real quick. <laughs> uh, and I was, I just didn't want to go through that again because they were friends with my parents, and uh, I just decided that I couldn't have that happen anymore. I, I also didn't want uh, them coming around and, and targeting my daughter. My mother's already trying to take my daughter to church all the time, so couldn't have it. She's making her watch Jesus movies all the time. So, yeah, I just uh, I, I wanted to put a stop to that kind of home invasion. You know, it's one thing if I invite somebody to my house to talk about their religion, but Nothing that you should be going door to door, right. trying yeah. to sell. Well, Josh, I, I guess one thing I can say is that you you make me feel better about living in West Michigan. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't get the complete wrong impression about Utah. There's definitely a good culture here, especially in Salt Lake. It's getting a lot more liberal. There's, but uh, if you get into the rural communities, you're completely surrounded, completely outnumbered, and they let you know. And the church in general just has a really divisive effect on the communities here. I think that uh, it's pretty obvious in any town. You can tell who the Mormons are and who aren't, and they're not terribly friendly to one another. So, Well, we appreciate you trying to raise uh, public awareness about this and, and let others know uh, what your story was, and we do recommend that our listeners check out the Battling Bullshit blog. There's a lot of fun posts there mm-hmm. that I think they'll get a lot out of, and, uh, and uh, just really appreciate you joining us on the show today, Josh. Yeah, thank you very much. I I appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure to speak with both of you. So that was what Josh experienced getting out of the uh, Mormon church. We got an email recently from listener Steve who is a former Jehovah's Witness. Uh, he got out. He was writing to us, though, about his younger brother. He's concerned that his younger brother is going to get get stuck in, and he wanted our help in trying to get him out. Um, here's some of what he wrote, he, and he described some of his own experience with the church, um, with Jehovah's Witnesses. And unlike most Jehovah's Witnesses, especially ones that start out young, uh, Steve actually went to college, which is not common for you know, they have witnesses. the lowest education average level of any uh, denomination. Y- yeah, um, which is at least part- Mormons are educated. That, this is true. Yeah, Mormons actually have have some decent schools. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses do, rarely do go to college, and that's of course one of the one of the ways to keep them in the church. You keep them undereducated, and and uh, you've and got so that's where control he, on them. Is that where Steve first was able to yeah. think more critically yes, and freely? He, he went to, to Tufts, actually. Oh, that, Tufts isn't that University. where Dennett, Dennett, Dennett teaches? Yep. Yeah. Um, but, uh, quite a liberal college. He said, well, he was there. He started researching the organization of the Jehovah's Witnesses in secular works, and that revealed so much that was hidden about the shaky history of the faith, where thousands died because of the order to abstain from blood. Um, right. No transfusions, that sort of thing, and others lost everything waiting for the world to end on three different occasions. Somebody was showing me a book recently, a fictional book about a Jehovah's Witness vampire, and what a conflict! This is not Twilight. No, no, that's, no, that's Mormon vampires. No, this was this was a, a real book out there, and apparently he's like conflicted because you know yeah, because he has you to abstain to, from blood. When and, they knock at the door, you have to invite them in. Yeah, that's oh. the thing. I, that's the thing I have said you ever to him. Have you thought about was, where they would go? Yeah, and would you who, die? Who? 
Who wants to invite a Jehovah's Witness into their house? You're right. That is, well, that would be a tough job. What do they do about the blood? Because if you can't have a transfusion, you can bite someone else and have their blood. Before I bite you, have you had unprotected sex? (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, (laughs) Were you an IV drug user? Steve (laughs) goes on to say that he's trying to help his brother get out before it sabotages his life, forcing him to commit for lack of any social group outside of the Jehovah's Witness circle. Okay, exactly what we're talking about with cults. He's a follower because of friends he's had since childhood who are still living at their parents' home and evangelizing, believing that any secular schooling beyond high school is unnecessary. So far, he says, my brother is in college beginning his sophomore year. So uh, that's a good step in the right direction. But members of the organization keep contacting him with words of encouragement. Their youth participation is extremely low. Jehovah's Witnesses are desperate to hold on to their young people, um, as are actually a, they have a, a high turnover of, rate. Yeah. He, Steve says that he and his brother argue about aspects of the faith and that his brother just spits back the standard rhetoric listed in the Jehovah's Witness publications. Uh, how do I get him to start thinking critically about the faith? He claims he knows it's the right faith because it's the only one that teaches the same thing worldwide without denominations. Um, Okay. Well, first of all, that's a silly argument. Well, yeah. Even if they do have uniformity in their doctrines, which I highly doubt it, how is – it's just a non sequitur. It it doesn't – It doesn't make it It doesn't follow. Um, There's no reason why that is evidence that this is the true path or or true at all. Mm Mm-hmm. But second of all, I would say I, I think he's doing everything yeah. he can. I mean uh, – Well, and that was uh, – that's I think the the sad thing here is – and having been a, a Jehovah's Witness, uh, Steve knows what it took for him to get out and that's that's critical thinking. Right. But if, if his brother is not ready to think critically – Yeah, argument. Uh, he's already in, an insti- in a secular college, yep. right? So he has outside influences. Beyond that, in fact, when you ever when you try to go beyond that to try to change somebody's beliefs, it can get you in dangerous territory. You're going to get more quick. blowback than, than anything. Yeah, the, be- else. the best thing he could do is maintain a good relationship with him, and then that in itself will be more corrosive than anything else. If you have people telling you in your church, you know, your brother, he's going to go to hell, when, and you say, oh, he's a decent guy, he accepts me, that is enough right there on an emotional level to say this right. is this is messed Co- up. Of course, the trick of that is that Jehovah's Witnesses want you to cut all communication with those who have been excommunicated. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I, clearly his brother is still engaging him. It sounds like that that may be thin ice that, that he's skating on there. So I would say – Well, yeah, and I guess a risk there is – I mean, we, we know with belief preservation, right, Luke, that if, if you press somebody too hard on their beliefs, oftentimes one defense mechanism will be for them to actually become more dogmatic, more firm, more entrenched in Because then they perceive it as being external rather than internal. The goal of any type of apostasy with that is that the person has to to recognize it as their own thoughts. If you you say, you're stupid, you're crazy, this belief is wrong too much, the person would say, that's something not me. That's what my brother keeps telling me rather than leaving it open-ended and saying, well, no, think about that. Does that make any sense to you? You need to think about things yourself. Right. Right. And you're helping to fulfill all of the teachings that say we're going to be oppressed and persecuted and all of that. And people are going to tell you that you're wrong and they're going to try to 
turn you away from the true faith. Yeah. The worst thing that might happen is they'll say, this is why I shouldn't be talking to you, Steve, because you're trying to get between me and my relationship with God, and you certainly don't want that to happen. So if you're committed to helping your brother see through this, you might be in it for the long haul, and uh, you may have to use more subtle means. Right. But good luck to you, Steve. We uh, we hope we hope things work out for the best. And congratulations for getting out yourself and for um, for caring enough to to try to get your brother out as well. And that's all for this week. Until next time, check out our website at www.doubtcast.org. Email us at doubtcast at gmail dot com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or even Zazzle at slash doubtcast. Keep sending in those entries for Gospel of Doubt, your questions, your comments, and all of that good stuff, story suggestions, etc. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 